What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends with Anna and Michael. I'm Anna Kasparian. And I'm and Michael Brooks. Brooks joins. Oh, sorry. What's up, Michael? We're How still, are you? We're still evening. Um, out. It's no fine. worries. I don't know about you. I, I know I feel exhausted and groggy right now. So, um, but we still have an awesome show ahead. Uh, in the interview portion of the program, we're going to talk to New York State lawmaker uh, Julia Salazar. She's a DSA member. Uh, she's a state senator, to be specific. And um, what better guest to have to discuss uh, the primaries that just took place in New York, in Kentucky? Uh, lots of really good news there. So we'll discuss. And um, in our SALT segment, there's plenty of SALT to go around for Elizabeth Warren and her decision to endorse horrible corporate Democrats as uh, candidates in the Colorado primary. Here's uh, we'll the thing. We'll discuss that. Here's, Here's the, the do thing. It, do it. Here's the <laughs> thing. <laughs> it, it's, it's ridiculous how much I love your genius. Warren impression. I love Elizabeth. <laughs> I love just turning her into an anti-Semite. It was just awesome. So cheap. So stupid. I love it. My daddy said um, that but Jews anyway, will take your money, uh, but they can't handle your money. All right, sorry. <laughs> so before we get to all of that, um, let's let's uh, engage in a little bit of banter. Uh, before we went live <laughs> today, uh, I came across a story about how there's um, an association of realtors in Texas who have decided that they will no longer use the word master to refer to master bedrooms and homes. And look, I was super relieved and happy to find that the vast majority of people who responded to that article were against it and they thought it was ridiculous and it makes a mockery of very real problems that um, black people face in this country. It's incredible because you have black people saying, hey, how about you guys treat us equally and stop allowing the cops to murder us on the streets? And then you get a response like, Mm, no, but you know what? We will stop using the word master when we refer to master bedrooms. That that ought to do it, right? It's just ridiculous. It's embarrassing and it's insulting, but I mean, this is also why there is a real material consequence to this broader thing, whether it's the toxicity of, of cancel culture or any of these other things, because... And, and I'm not saying like, look, we can disaggregate all of this stuff. Like obviously, a, a particularly because it's connected to a powerful movement, the Confederate statues coming down is excellent. Really, really important and awesome historical progress. And it's actually happening internationally. And at the same time, we this is the pattern from corporate America and from the sort of neoliberal consensus, which is a real material issue is put on the table. And then it gets pivoted to another frenzy of trying to, you know, sort of in a cult-like, ridiculous, hysterical way, attack individuals and try to like exercise personal individual demons uh, or and then a major boon for, you know, the always bullshit filled basically HR and corporate training industry and then a bunch of corporate moves. Some of them are substantive, you know, in the economy we're living in. Like if it actually means like investing in, you know, actual like business ventures, talent, that's obviously a good thing. But overall, what it really turns into is a story that starts with a couple of police murders that could open a whole doorway into racism, into policing, into class structure, into in policing, into 
the outsourcing of militarism instead of dealing with social issues becomes another opportunity for groups of people to try to sort of like terrorize and penalize each other individually. And then a bunch of just embarrassing cultural signifiers that make a mockery of the life and death issues that people have put on the table. And, you know, we need to get used to this. I mean, this again, like this, this is literally what the most important, you know, thinkers we have have been warning us about. Like Cedric Johnson has the piece in Jackman. Don't let blackwashing save the investor class. Adolf Reed has talked about this. I mean, this is where we are. And, you know, this is the ideological current uh, we're swimming in and we need to be able to respond to it. And sometimes responding to it is also going to mean like, you know, just not buying in to all of the sort of like lazy default assumptions and cliches that we hear all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we see over and over again is the use of the signifiers as a substitute for real and necessary fundamental change. And so I, I am, I kind of see it happening right now. Uh, luckily, we still have uh, all these wonderful activists who are focused, people still marching on the streets, demanding the change that we absolutely need when it comes to law enforcement in this country. We can't lose that focus because that is the problem. That is, that is one of the main problems that's um, leading to people being treated as as second-class citizens, like their lives are not valued by the people who are supposed to be enforcing the law. That should be the focus. And, you know, I think that there have been some really great conversations about so-called uh, cancel culture. Uh, I think on Jacobin, for instance, there was a really great one with Matt Chrisman. And I appreciate it because I think right now it's it's kind of a a risky conversation to have, right? Because people feel pressured to go along with it. But I do think that there are some dangers. And I think that it also discourages people from progressing as humans. Like we're all so incredibly complicated. We're not all good and we're not all bad. And so what use is it to be open-minded and receptive to change if you go in that direction and you're persecuted anyway, right? Like Wendell Potter is a good example of that. Wendell Potter used to work for the private healthcare industry. And he, as someone who worked for the private healthcare industry, uh, he did go along with uh, disinformation campaigns when it came to single payer healthcare. And then he decided, you know what, this is wrong. And he quit his very well-paying job to essentially become a healthcare whistleblower, which is so important. And I was really sad to see that he was attacked on Twitter yesterday, called, you know, a piece of shit uh, because he was open and honest about what he did when he worked for the private healthcare industry. No, I mean, we should applaud that kind of behavior. We should applaud people for coming, you know, to the right conclusions and uh, denouncing what they used to do. And but also, just, I don't know. I, I just know, I mean, feel not like only that, but also, you know, the other reality too, that like things are shifting really, really quickly in many good ways and some bad ways, mostly good and some bad, as I say, but like, you know, you can't, you have to also just like recognize that like, yeah, there's several years ago, things that would have not even been remotely controversial that all of a sudden, and, and again, the problem isn't just that it's like, it does create an incredibly anxiety ridden and deeply toxic and kind of like culty culture 
that is antithetical to actually building durable solidarity. So there's a, a broader political consequence to it if you want to do like actual politics, not just sort of like culture war skirmish. But also it's um, it, it really and this this layers into the same point. I mean, it just has the, the function automatically of taking us out of real things into basically mm-hmm. just like gossip. And I think, you know, that's like the thing that always needs to be monitored. And another thing that I've noticed, like I posted this article, it was a really, really interesting piece on sort of like moral absolutism and cruelty on the left. And it was a good piece. It was something that mm-hmm. it tracked uh, with, with, a, with a really interesting feminist writer in the 70s. It obviously had relevance to today. And I noticed like, you know, some people, and again, like Twitter is like the lowest thing ever. So of course, and some people are like, oh, like I see you're, you know, joining the IDW now. And it's like, you need to be able, like there is a pre and post critique of all of this stuff. Like the IDW right wing critique is that none of this stuff matters. None of it is real. None of it are urgent emergencies that need to be addressed. And none of it is, of course, the product of our, of the historical forces we live in. That is completely different from saying, what direction do you actually want to go in? Do you want to go in a democratic direction? Do you want to go in a socialistic direction? Do you want to go in a direction that is ruthless on institutions, but good to people and actually like tries to deal with the roots of problems? And so, you know, if you're reading both of those same critiques as the same thing, because they're both sort of like criticizing, like, you know, trends in wokeness or whatever, you know, this again, it's like, this is why people need to like read books and not just sit on Mm -hmm. social media every day. Because two things that might sound superficially like similar critiques are coming from completely different places. And one is actually like, you know, moving beyond uh, versus regressing before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I just want to live in a society that doesn't, that allows humans to be humans, right? Doesn't, exactly. I don't think that we should live in terror uh, over making a mistake or misspeaking or having views that might be wrong. Views should absolutely be challenged, right? But I think that having those views challenged as opposed to, uh, condemning a person and pretending like they don't exist anymore. Those are two completely different things. I'd rather go for, hey, let's have the dialogue. Yes, it can be uncomfortable. Yes, it can be frustrating. But everyone needs to just take a moment and just do a little bit of self-reflection because none of us are perfect. A lot of us go through oh personal God, growth and development. Humility. I mean, I'm sorry. To, well, that's a yeah. good example. It's a small example, but I interrupt way too much. But it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, Anybody could be made to look absolutely awful and everybody has done either like real mistakes and will continue to do so or also like, again, you know, like, yeah, at the time, it's a different context. Didn't even occur that it was a problem. Things have shifted. Like that is actually the process. Like, do you want people to just be discoursing these things because they're afraid or do you actually want some internalization Mm -hmm. you know it actually takes a process yep and it's uncomfortable but i think that it's way more um valuable and rewarding really so 
All right. Well, uh, why don't we get to our commentaries? I guess I'll start today and uh, discuss the roller coaster of emotions that I've personally been feeling when it comes to Donald Trump and the prospect of him getting reelected. So as things stand today, it's not looking so good for Donald Trump's reelection. And of course, uh, as someone who finds Donald Trump to be a a threat to our constitution, our democratic process, to the health and safety of so many Americans, I think that it's great news. It's something that uh, I want to celebrate. And I certainly did celebrate uh, when I saw that he is lagging behind significantly in polling. Now, this is the latest poll, but I want to note that several polls in a row have indicated that Biden is leading Donald Trump nationally in the double digits. But one of the more recent polls was done by the New York Times and Siena College, and they found that Trump is actually trailing Biden by 14 points. Things also look pretty bad when you look at six battleground states that Trump actually won in 2016. So let me give you some of those numbers. Uh, the poll found that Biden is ahead of Trump 47 to 36 in Michigan, 49 to 38 in Wisconsin, 50 to 40 in Pennsylvania, 47 to 41 in Florida, 48 to 41 in Arizona, and 49 to 40 in North Carolina. Now, I have always been and always will be skeptical of polling because there are always going to be errors. You have to look into the margin of error, of course. What was the methodology done or used in this polling? And we all thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win based on polling back in 2016. And obviously, things didn't turn out the way that we expected. But what we saw during Trump's Tulsa rally gave us a peek into how valid these polls really are, uh, because his Tulsa rally was a complete and utter disaster. Uh, So let's take a quick look at the video that um, definitely led to more celebrations internally. Take a look. So, uh, of course, many people started dunking on Trump. They were expecting millions of people to show up. Brad Parscale uh, demonstrated just how incompetent he is as a campaign manager. There were stories about TikTok users trolling the Trump campaign by reserving tickets and then not showing up. Um, And look, when you see the lack of enthusiasm among some members of Trump's base, it makes you feel a little better. It makes you feel like, hey, maybe, maybe it's time to get real cocky and think that Biden's got it in a bag. Yeah, he's hiding out in a basement somewhere, but that's okay, right? Now, I I knew that eventually there would be someone on the left who would rain on our parade and publish something that would be sobering and honest and truthful. And of course, uh, I found that piece in The Jacobin written by Luke Savage. And I want to give you a few uh, excerpts from what he wrote because I actually do agree with him, even though it's kind of hard to stomach the reality of what we're dealing with right now, I think it's important to be prepared and not get overconfident. So his piece is titled, Don't Get Too Cocky About Donald Trump's Flop in Tulsa Last Weekend. And uh, in it, he writes, the chosen democratic strategy, coupled with the inevitable uncertainty of the coming months, make it uncomfortably easy to envision a scenario where the election's outcome suddenly looks like less of a foregone conclusion. This is admittedly in part 
an uh, intuitive supposition born of the debacle of 2016 when virtually all the so-called experts told us Hillary Clinton would easily romp to victory. Now, in choosing, and this is the part that I think is really important, in choosing to nominate Joe Biden, the Democrats have gone all in on what may prove a deceptively risky exercise in electoral roulette, opting for a candidate at his best when neither seen nor heard. Biden inspires little in the way of grassroots excitement and is unlikely to marshal a national army of volunteers to his cause. Trump's rally in Tulsa, disastrous though it was, still had better attendance than any Biden rally over the past year. Now, in various conversations that I've had with Michael Brooks on this show, um, you know, there is some confidence that uh, Biden will beat Trump. But I think that it goes beyond policy or popularity or polling or what the majority of voters want. I think there's a very real issue that's being ignored by the Democratic Party, and that plays a role in how the outcome uh, will turn out in, in November. And what I'm specifically talking about is the persistent and unstoppable efforts by Republicans and the Trump administration to disenfranchise voters. This has been a campaign that has been ongoing and there has not been a good response to it. And I think what we experienced during the primary elections in Kentucky and New York is a great example of that. We just had those primaries and there were all sorts of issues with physical in-person polling places being shut down. 95% of polling places in Kentucky were shut down. There were problems with mail-in ballots. People who had applied for mail-in ballots did not receive them, or they received uh, the wrong ballots, missing portions of the ballots, all sorts of problems. And so we have to consider that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. People are not going to feel comfortable going to in-person voting locations to cast their ballots. So what are we doing to prepare? Luckily, states want to expand mail-in voting. But again, as we can see in recent examples, we're still not prepared. And at the same time, we're dealing with someone like Donald Trump, with an attorney general like William Barr, who have engaged in a full-blown assault against mail-in voting. All sorts of disinformation, all sorts of lies, all sorts of conspiracy theories about how mail-in voting will allegedly lead to fraud, but there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that that's actually true. So I want to start off with um, a video of Donald Trump because... He's a moron, so sometimes he says the quiet parts out loud, especially when he's talking to his friends at Fox and Friends. And uh, he admitted that in one of the stimulus bills, Democrats were attempting to pass protections for voters to ensure that even in the middle of a pandemic, everyone who wants to vote has the ability to vote. But Trump doesn't want that because he sees that as a threat. He explains why in this next clip. I, I will tell you this. If you look at before and after, the things they had in there were crazy. Uh, they had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. They had things in there about, uh, you know, election days and uh, what you do and uh, all sorts of uh, clawbacks. And they had things that were just totally crazy. And <laughs> So he said it. I mean, he's very transparent about how he does not want mail-in voting. He does not want to make it easier for Americans to cast their ballots, because if it is easier, if voters are uh, are, are not suppressed, 
then it's likely that many Republicans will lose. It's likely that he won't get reelected. He repeated a similar point recently during an interview with Politico where he said, quote, my biggest risk is that we don't win lawsuits against mail-in voting. We have many lawsuits going all over. And if we don't win those lawsuits, I think I think it puts the election at risk. And by the way, just this week, Attorney General William Barr tried to cite the mismanagement of stimulus checks by the IRS as a way of arguing that mail-in voting would be a disaster when the two are completely separate, the two are done in a completely different way, the checks are dispersed by the federal government through the IRS, through the Treasury Department, and when it comes to mail-in voting, that's dealt with uh, on a state level. But it doesn't matter because the misinformation continues, and um, apparently when asked during an interview with NPR if he thought an election conducted mainly by mail could be secure, Barr said, Personally, no. We just mailed out checks under this program. It wasn't this program. It was through a different program, but okay. We just mailed out checks under this program, and what is it? I heard something like 20% or something were misdirected, Barr said, referring to a Government Accountability Office report released Thursday that stated more than $1 billion in stimulus funding was sent to people who were deceased. Now, again, the way that the stimulus legislation was written essentially did not allow the IRS to do any type of checking, like any type of, um, I guess, check to ensure that they're not sending these checks to the wrong people or to people who have died. Uh, But again, mail-in ballots would be dealt with on a state level. So to uh, conflate the two is dishonest to say the least. And it's obviously done intentionally to make people think that mail-in voting will lead to widespread fraud. When again, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest this is the case. Now, while all this misinformation is out there, while the Trump administration is pursuing these lawsuits against mail-in ballots, what is the Democratic Party doing? What is Biden doing? So, okay, I get it. Donald Trump is a disaster and hiding out in a basement will help you look good because Trump looks so bad. But it doesn't matter if people who want to vote for Biden don't have the opportunity to vote for Biden. And by the way, when it comes to absentee ballots, uh, there we already have issues, especially when it comes to the number of people who apply for the ballots versus the number of people who actually turn those ballots in. So let's look at uh, New York as an example. And our wonderful producer, Cale Brooks, brought this to my attention. So in the Bronx, for instance, there were over 99,000 absentee ballots issued. Only 15,000 of them were returned. Uh, Brooklyn was particularly bad with, um, you know, 231,697 ballots issued, but only 8,888 were returned. So we need to not only protect mail-in voting and make that uh, a very real option for people who want to stay home and not go to in-person places to vote, but we also have to encourage people to vote, to turn in those ballots uh, so we can get Donald Trump out of office. Everything else uh, really means nothing unless we can ensure that we protect the validity and the ability for people to go out there and vote. And one final thing that I want to bring up, Maggie Haberman, who is a New York Times reporter, is as pro-establishment as you can get. And she shared, I think, very mild analysis on the Biden campaign during a recent interview. 
And the establishment lost their mind over it. And that is not a good sign. So let me show you the video and then I'll explain why this is not a good sign. I don't know any Democrats, honestly, Anderson, who think this is going to be an easy election. I think David can uh, possibly speak to that more than I can. But I certainly don't know any who think this is going to be easy, in part because a lot of people are very scarred by thinking that 2016 was going to be easy. And by people, I mean Democrats, were scarred by thinking that Hillary Clinton was was naturally going to defeat uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Hillary Clinton thought that. Her top advisors all thought that. And they were sort of appalled and couldn't allow for the fact that he was doing as well as he was, and reality overtook them. And so I think that there are Democrats who are concerned that that is what will happen again. Look, as as much uh, trouble as Donald Trump is in politically right now, a lot of it of his own making, but certainly not all of it. Um, Joe Biden is still a very flawed candidate. Um, he is running a flawed campaign so far. There are still four months left. They have to have what are supposed to be three general election debates. So there was a ridiculous meltdown on Twitter uh, to the point where Maggie Haberman's name was trending. And I was like, ooh, she's trending. Are people finally waking up to her shoddy reporting? Uh, But no, they were actually mad at her because she spoke the truth in that segment and cautioned the Democratic Party about, you know, possibly being overly confident about Biden's chances of beating Donald Trump. I think that she's right and I think that the response from the establishment, from the near attendants of the world, uh, is not a good sign because it's the same type of mentality they had in 2016, which unfortunately led to all sorts of mistakes by Hillary Clinton's campaign and led to someone like Donald Trump winning. So I just want people to wake up and realize that this is not going to be a cakewalk because while Biden, yes, has his own policy flaws from the past, there's also a huge question that continues to go unanswered about what the Democratic Party is going to do to protect people's right to vote during this pandemic. Michael. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I actually I think and Luke is a, obviously a great political analyst and you can watch, uh, listen to him. He has a, it's called Michael and us podcast, which is actually great. In addition to his writing for Jacobin, I don't think on the level of things like enthusiasm, I think the left needs to, like, I don't think that that matters as much as we would like it to matter. And I think that overwhelmingly a lot of democratic voters clearly were just going in with whatever mix of, I don't care who it is, as long as it's not Trump. I think some nostalgia, which I wish there wasn't, but there obviously is for the Obama era. And so I I don't know, like when I look at that New York Times poll that I found fascinating was like Biden's favorable, unfavorable was like 26 and 27. It's not great at all. Mm-hmm. But Trump's was like 27.52 or 27.50, as in 27 favorable over 50% unfavorable. So I I think that, you know, and I also think in terms of 2016, I mean, yes, Clinton definitely led in the polls. I don't think she led by these margins. And I also think that, you know, there just Mm -hmm. was, Trump was just doing something new. And it's interesting to see how he's not like, as I always said, of course, he's going to double down on the racism and the xenophobia and the crazy right-wing talking points. But he is barely even pretending to go back to the stuff about trade agreements or suggesting he's a different kind of Republican on health care or, you know, sort of like hitting the elite economic structure and kind of like vague, entertaining populist terms. So I honestly, I think he's in really significant trouble. 
Republicans always suppress the vote. Obviously, that is and that's another thing that people should contextualize is way, way beyond Trump. Bill Barr is definitely the most dangerous and authoritarian, actual authoritarian member of the administration. Is an incredibly pernicious influence on American life going back to Iran-Contra. I mean, I just keep having to mention that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think, um, you know, and then, yeah, I mean, but but I think this really disturbing thing about the Haberman thing is that the, the mainstream resistance Democratic Party, whatever you want to call it, has gotten so touchy and so insulated that they can't even, I mean, this is mild as hell criticism while your candidate looks to be extremely well positioned. So it really mm-hmm. is showing. And I, and I think, you know, again, it, it requires like some people are not going to like me saying this, but it's like, of course, Trump and MAGA is like the most extreme political cult in the United States, but there's a resistance political cult. Uh, and you know, there's some definite cult like tendencies on the left, unfortunately, as well. Like there is at times like a real strong inability to just like, that's just a balls and strikes comment. There's nothing Mm -hmm. like, you know, she didn't say like, because he's an asshole or because he's whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that was the thing with Bernie, that Bernie was smeared and lied about all the time. But if somebody said he's over 70 and grouchy, I can't have a meltdown about that. That's true. Like there's some like, you know, I mean, the one part is partially true. One part subjectively true. Joe Biden, I like God, I hope his advisors see that he has flaws as a candidate because I want him to beat Trump. If they're in that such a level of delusion, I mean, like, what are they going to do? It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that I'm worried about. Uh like the head in the sand strategy that I feel like is taking place right now. And look, this goes beyond politics. This is just, I guess, life advice. People need to be open to constructive feedback and critique. And what we saw in the primaries when Biden's voting record came up or his policy record came up was ridiculous. Like just this rejection of any type of discourse Uh, that critiques Biden's past. And he will not improve as a candidate unless he's receptive to that. Um, But, you know, we've seen in several videos, even in the election events he held, if anyone came up to him with even like some mild feedback, uh, he didn't react well to it. And that's not a good sign. Uh, He needs to be receptive. He He needs to to be open. You know, like maybe he doesn't need to. Like he's doing fine. I mean, like, you're right on the merits, yeah. but like, I mean, that's the thing that's, I, I, I guess I'm too cynical. I, a part of me, and this is partially because, you know, I, I'm, I may be in a very cynical mood right now. I think his success is hysterical on some level, like mm-hmm. all of the kind of like, oh my God, we're, you know, we need to do this and we need to do that and da 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 and And he just literally came out a year ago squinting at the camera. I was just like, things are super bad, Jack. <laughs> just coasted. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, I love it. we are experiencing <laughs> like, every bad thing you can imagine, right? I mean, there's civil unrest, there's a pandemic, and everyone's like, someone needs to save us. And it's just, yeah, I guess there's like a funny element to it that Biden's the guy, right? Biden's the guy that was like forced on us to be the savior of the moment. And 
I'm just trying to help him out, you know? I'm just I trying know. to help him out. And more than anything, more than anything, like it does like my point isn't like he's flawed and he doesn't stand a chance. No. My point is you're actually right. There is this uh, desire, this nostalgic desire to go back to the Obama years. I think that Trump has bungled everything and it's become very clear even to Trump's own supporters. And by the way, it's being reflected in some of these Senate races where now Republican incumbents are like, uh, I think I should probably speak out against Trump now because I'm trailing the Democratic challenger here. But at the same time, all of that stuff means nothing if William Barr and Donald Trump are successful in suppressing the vote. And while they're fighting aggressively to do it, I want to know what is the Democratic Party doing? They're trying to figure right? out Instagram It's just filters. so bad. <laughs> There's, so some... bad. <laughs> There's something so alpha, though, about Joe Biden that he's just literally just like, yeah, I mean, everybody keeps complaining, calling me senile, just sitting in the basement winning. That's true. That's true. That is pretty alpha. I will say that. Oh my God. I mean, look, not having Bernie as nominee is like a world historical tragedy that I think people who know anything and have any type of like actual commitment either recognize or will recognize if they don't yet for whatever reason. But I mean, I don't know. This was like in my most cynical moments where like Biden was just sort of like, I. He's a second choice because it's funny. <laughs> You're too funny. It's hysterical. Um, no, sometimes you got it. Sometimes you do need to find like the comedic relief in in these kinds of things. And um, I was actually watching Dave Chappelle's 2017 special. I, I had seen it before, and I'm so glad I watched it again last night. It's so relevant for what we're experiencing right now yes. <laughs> in this moment in history. Everybody watch. Yeah. I mean, the way he has kept up his quality level is mind blowing. Um, all of his 2017 specials. And then the one he just released a couple weeks ago is, I mean, so it's pretty good. funny, but it's actually like historical and poignant. I mean, he's just, he might just be like the best communicator in the United States. Um, yeah. I, I, I Definitely. I mean, his ability to make you laugh about things that make you cry on a regular basis is is incredible. And that's why, look, um, when I started working at TYT in 2007, the thing that really appealed to me about uh, left-wing ideology was the willingness to embrace freedom of expression and comedy, even when comedy makes you uncomfortable. At that time, it was the right wing that was trying to censor comedy and everyone thought they were crazy. And the pendulum has swung in the complete opposite direction. That's not to say that comedians time to time don't make mistakes or whatever, but I do think that it's, uh, it is toxic when we create this culture where people are afraid to express themselves. Oh, of course. you know, I, I don't, I don't want to censor the Dave Chappelle's of the world. Oh, please. God, no. That's that's a that's just terrible. But uh, I do want to say, and I'll do my commentary after our conversation with uh, Julia. But I just I did actually. Speaking of mistakes, I just made a mistake in the last five minutes, and I just want to really clear this up really quickly. Marianne Williamson was the second choice. 
Mm. Joe mm. Biden was in like the top several for comedic purposes, but the queen, the god, the goat, Marion Williamson was actually like legit my second choice. That that was the funniest shit when I would tweet something because first of all because it's just like the primary choice is Bernie. Like I never was fucking around. But the other thing was just really like in the begin if you tweeted out Marion's the second choice and like oh, oh my god. I I hope you're choking. <laughs> Have you read Elizabeth Warren's medium posts? Oh my god! I know, I know, I know. <laughs> it was something so. And then, with each step of the way, Maryam just vindicated me again and again and again and again and again. And she's pretty awesome. Yeah, she's it's, still out there doing it. It's true. She definitely had some great moments. Um, her interview with Ruben, Dave Ruben, was phenomenal. 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 Um, that. Nothing impressed me more than how she single-handedly dismantled him on camera. I was like, wow, it's awesome. Someone sent me so a crazy. Dave Rubin thing that, I mean, maybe we'll play at some point. But it, honestly, it was just painful. It was, uh, I guess he was taking like a super chat question. Which, by the way, we'll take a couple of your super chat questions at the end. And somebody was just like, are you going to go on Joe Rogan's show to, to uh, promote your new book? I love when people say in general, I felt for Dave because sometimes like people will say like, Hey, Michael, would you like, first of all, dream guest spot would be to go on the Joe Budden podcast. Not, not Rogan, Joe Budden podcast. Gene would love to be on that show. And I'd love to host him too. But I like when people ask like, you know, would you go on Joe Budden? It's like, yes, I would go on like a massively popular, in this case, like extremely good, like podcast. Yes. Like the thing that is stopping that from happening is not me just, I don't really feel the needs. So, so they asked like Dave Rubin, are you going to go on Rogan to promote your new book? And it's like, there's obviously a reason that Dave Rubin has not gone on Rogan to promote his fucking book. And Rubin was just like, I I guess, I mean, I know, I think we've asked like a bajillion times, just haven't heard back. I'm just like, oh man. That's I know I, I like, said yeah, it was so sad. I don't know if I so even, I don't poor, think this is poor funny. Day. I don't think this is funny poor anymore. Day. I can't take it. I was like I I don't know what's the matter with me. Maybe I'm just getting really soft, but I was just like I don't think this is funny. This is just like a pure dismantling. <laughs> so good. By the way, I have a funny I have a funny Do we have time? Oh no. Uh we have our guest coming. Okay, well, uh, um so no, she, she can let's wait do that. Gossip about uh, Dave Rubin. She's a state senator. No <laughs> I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure she yeah, would love it. Yeah, you know? we got, yeah. Hang out. Hang out. We got, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of course, we should. Bring All right. Our well, guests. Um, yes. let's go ahead and take a break, uh, and then when we come back, we'll have um, New York State Senator Julia Salazar joining us.
back to Weekends with uh, Michael Brooks, myself, and of course, the great Anna Kasparian. Joining us now is State Senator Julia Salazar. Julia, Senator, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Good to see you both. Good to see you. Um, So just out of the gate, uh, there was some elections in New York last week, obviously, some actually really, really good wins uh, from our perspective, both in the federal and state level including your uh, very comfortable return. Congratulations. Uh, can you yeah, give your reactions to, uh, to what we saw? Yeah. Um, well, it, we are still waiting on some of the final results um, because they won't begin counting absentee ballots in New York until July 1st. Um, and I think we're, we're still waiting for, certainly we're still waiting for final results in Kentucky. Um, but it was overall a victorious night for a lot of DSA candidates um, and a lot of members who worked really hard on the campaigns of um, my fellow slate mates and myself um, for Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and also for uh, two uh, new incoming congresspeople, uh, Jamal Bowman, and hopefully uh, it looks like Mondaire Jones as well, who whose campaign um, didn't get quite as much attention, but um, it's it's an exciting time, especially not not only for democratic socialists, but especially for candidates of color. Um, we saw black candidates win their elections as well, running um, unapologetically either as democratic socialists or um, people who are totally aligned with our policy platforms and our ideals. So it, it's really a demonstration um, of popular support for a democratic socialist policy agenda. There was a lot of, I guess, dismissive uh, commentary from Democratic leadership in 2018 when you start seeing people like uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez win uh, these races. And so I'm curious, you know, what do you make of their attitude? Do you think that some of the victories that we're seeing uh, during the primaries right now uh, could make them maybe change their mindset a little bit and maybe even be a little more open minded? to progressive policy proposals? Yeah, I, I mean, it absolutely demonstrates that um, that even the skeptics um, and neoliberals, um, neoliberal pundits should be taking this movement seriously because of the robust demonstration of popular support. Um, those who were saying in 2018 that, uh, the con- that Congresswoman AOC was elected by you know, white progressives only. Um, some of them tried to make the same case about my race, despite the electoral map telling a different story. And so for, you know, it's not only about um, about candidates who, p- people of color, especially um, people who are, are from their districts or their um, identity is very representative of their district. And they also ran as democratic socialists for them to have, these commanding victories uh, really demonstrates that that this stereotype that people of color don't support uh, democratic socialism and are not ready for these kinds of transformative policies. It demonstrates that it's just it's just false and it's not based in uh, data and it, it's not based in the reality that we're seeing play out in these elections, including in my own district. When we talk about how the, uh, like, say, establishment responds to these wins, and I think it, it's been really interesting to track because 
you're talking about like this full expression. It's a political agenda, very explicitly about national single payer health care. It's about serious uh, strategies on renewability and the environment. It's actually a willingness. Uh, and I hope people won't lose sight of this. We'll see what happens. But Jamal Bowman was willing to question uh, you know, uh, key U.S. foreign policy brutalities, which Elliot Engel was a main conductor of in his role as head of the Foreign Relations Committee. So, and I've noticed, and I'm I'm forgetting it, I don't have it in front of me, but one of the, you know, pod save guys went very quickly to the identity part of the equation. Like, okay, yeah, like there are these cool candidates, they're younger, they represent their constituencies. And of course, that's an element of it. But we know that the, the the mainstream of the Democratic Party, I mean, they're in a coming to America moment. We saw the kneel. They are totally willing to embrace um, a very fabricated and superficial representation of what you're talking about. So so how do you respond to that component of them kind of looking and saying like, oh, OK, sure. Like we can we can sort of play like a kind of like corporate game with this without embracing the actual energy behind it across the board, which is, of course, still antithetical to their you know, campaign donors? Well, what we saw, for example, in Jamal Bowman's race against Elliot Engel was um, the, the people among the establishment who share, at very least, um, a, a basic identity with Jamal Bowman, such as the Congressional Black Caucus. We saw them uh, rally around the establishment candidate in you know, because it serves their own interests as the establishment. It it serves to, um, so, you know, to help them stay in power, and also, of course, it serves their class interests, right? And and so I think that alone, if if they learn from this, and they should learn from this, that it's not enough to um, appeal to these these superficial things and sort of fake solidarity with the movement, um, based on these, these superficial things, um, then, then, uh, you know, that, that's really what they should be learning from this. Um, I'm not, you know, it's yet to be seen if the political establishment is going to finally come around and recognize, oh, you know, these are, uh, winning campaigns because, uh, not only because the candidates are representative of, their districts and they're they're more for, certainly in New York, um, black and brown New Yorkers are more represented, are more represented when we don't just have old white men in office. Um, but additionally, they are speaking to the policies that people support, such as Medicare for all, such as a Green New Deal, um, such as the the U.S. Uh, no longer perpetuating an imperialist foreign policy and uh, prioritizing funding our military over taking care of, of our constituents and of Americans, right. Um, who, who are suffering, especially right now. So um, I think it's, it's a moment when I would hope that the establishment thinks really critically about these things and, and reflects on their strategy because it clearly isn't working. You know, one of the things that, uh, I feel great about, uh, based on the primaries that just happened, was that when you have the establishment and all the money and support that comes along with it, uh, endorsing you as a candidate, it's usually likely that you're going to win, right? And so that was the case with Elliot Engel. They gave him the money, they gave him the support, they backed him. 
And Jamal Bowman didn't raise as much money because, of course, he's uh, not going to raise money from uh, PACs, corporate PACs. He's not going to raise money uh, from corporations. And so he's... I know that the race hasn't been officially called, but he has a massive lead as it stands right now over Elliot Engel, 61.8% over Engel's 34.9%. And so I bring that up because... I think that it does send a a strong message to Democratic leadership that, hey, you know what, Uh, your money and your support doesn't necessarily mean that you have it in the bag for these incumbent Democrats. But one thing that I do wonder about is how likely is it with all of these incoming progressives that they are going to succeed in accomplishing some of the policy proposals that they want to accomplish? Because those policy proposals do go against the you know, the personal interests, the uh, the monetary interests of these uh, establishment members of Congress. And, you know, you ran on a campaign, I thought it was super impressive, on affordable housing in New York. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe share some of your experience um, on a more local level in trying to get your policies passed and what kind of resistance you've received uh, from Democrats who are not in line with, um, you know, protecting people's basic human rights. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Uh, well, one of the advantages and, and uh, lessons from uh, candidates like myself who ran in 2018 and in 2020 uh, without any corporate PAC money, without real estate industry money, um, is that we demonstrate for those who are in the political establishment, um, some many of whom are my own colleagues, um, we demonstrate for them that this is what the people want. Um, especially if we are defeating someone as as I did in 2018, uh, someone who always he my my predecessor took more money from the real estate lobby than anyone else in the Democratic conference at the time um, was a 16 year incumbent, and the conventional knowledge was was that you wouldn't be able to run a viable campaign in New not only in New York City but in New York State without being except without accepting donations from the real estate industry or some other. Uh, private interest that compromises the the interests of your constituents. Um, but the more that candidates, not not just myself, some of my colleagues who were elected as well in 2018, even if even those who don't identify as democratic socialists, but who reject uh, for profit real estate money, like Senator Myrie, um, they have demonstrated that it can be done. And then additionally, for us to come back in 2020 with uh, a stronger mandate with, you know, Senator Myrie didn't actually have a primary challenge, but it, that also is a testament to um, his his district feeling represented and, and not feeling the need to um, put put new leadership in. Um, and, and then for myself, I was challenged by, again, someone who, while he was a weak challenger, um, received a lot of support from the real estate industry. There was um, a, a local developer who actually is responsible for for a lot of the gentrification that we've seen in North Brooklyn, was personally going around to housing developments during the pandemic with my opponent um, to, to offer them meals that were like more expensive than the ones that the city provides. Um, and, wow. and needless, right? needless to say that the, the real estate industry um, had stakes in this and, and particularly not only because of the um, of what I say that I support, but b- 
because last year in 2019, we had the opportunity in the state legislature to pass stronger rent laws. And uh, it was a lot of what I had campaigned on was supporting um, these these rent reforms that would remove loopholes in the rent laws uh, that were that were basically driving displacement. Right. Um, And then additionally, I introduced a bill that is uh, essentially described as a, a statewide universal rent control bill the good cause eviction bill, which we didn't get to pass in 2019, but uh, we have a majority of co-sponsors on the bill and are still continuing to fight for it. So naturally, um, you know, a a bill that would um, extend rights to millions of tenant households that who who currently have virtually no protections from eviction and displacement is not something that the real estate industry wants. Um, So so naturally they would run a candidate against you. But, you know, no amount of money, thankfully, can really persuade working class people and um, our communities who have witnessed firsthand the displacement of their families and um, their their families and themselves suffering from these policies. No amount of money poured in by lobbyists is going to persuade them to vote against their interests. And uh, it's it's interesting to see how um, other candidates, such as the candidate who challenged um, AOC, spent, I think, well over, if I remember correctly, well over a million dollars to try to take her out. And ultimately, um, AOC completely swept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it's sort of insulting that the idea that you could just buy an election like that, particularly in a congressional district or in a state Senate district, it's really insulting <laughs> to the intelligence of voters, um, that, that what you're really saying is that if we pour enough money into this and we just make the person's face visible enough by buying TV ads or enough posters, whatever, um, or even meals for public housing residents, that they are going to just accept that, um, and not reflect on, on whether it's in their own self-interest. Absolutely. So I, one just final question from me, uh, you're also obviously ran in uh, both times on a really strong platform of single payer healthcare and the need for that. I mean, it was always there, but, you know, post Corona, just in the same way with things like, you know, stopping evictions and rent moratoriums, where are you at with your work on a state level um, with providing healthcare for all New Yorkers? So I am a co-sponsor of the New York Health Act, which is the single payer legislation at the state level um, sponsored by Senator Rivera, who is a very close political ally of mine in in our house. Um, The 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 issue is and we also have a majority of co-sponsors. Hypothetically, if everyone who is a co-sponsor of the bill were to vote on it tomorrow in the state Senate and in the state assembly, then it would be you know, it would pass and it would go to the governor's desk. Uh, we know realistically um, that the, the biggest challenge is our, our governor's unwillingness to raise revenue, uh, to tax the very wealthy, to um, implement new, perhaps creative uh, revenue streams and revenue generating proposals um, in order to both close the state's budget deficit, but also in order to fund a robust universal health care program in the state. Uh, so really, it's it's directly tied to this legacy of austerity that unfortunately, we haven't yet defeated in New York. But 
I'm hopeful as we're seeing um, we're going to have a new Democratic Socialist uh, colleague in the state Senate, Jabari Brisport, additional uh, at probably at least two additional um, state assembly members who are Democratic Socialists. Um, and, and what that is, it should be demonstrating to their colleagues and to, to my colleagues is that people are really eager to see not just sort of um, progressive talking points and rhetoric, but really want to see transformative change. Um, and, and precisely because we are winning Democratic primaries against people who, you know, probably have progressive voting records, um, but who just haven't demonstrated that they are champions for the working class and that they're really going to fight for these things. Um, I do think that it improves um, our chances of, of being able to pass really transformative policies like the New York Health Act. But it is, I think, uh, realistically, it will probably take um, a, a change of power it, at the executive level in order for us to finally pass uh, single payer health care in order and perhaps even for us to see universal rent control. But but we have to keep fighting for it. And then we also have to always remember to to put pressure on the executive um, and and say, you know, it's it's not you can't you can't blame it on the legislature. You can't blame it on the money not being there. We know that realistically it doesn't have to be this way. This is a way that we can get there. And, you know, we need to put the pressure on uh, the, the people who actually have the power to change this to make those to have the courage to make those decisions like like taxing the rich. Right. And and passing the New York Health Act and not cutting Medicaid in the middle of a pandemic, which huh. is something that I couldn't believe we were we were debating. But, Unreal. but you know, something we had to defend um, our, our local hospitals from during the state budget. Uh, Senator Salazar, last question for me. You know, you touched on this a little bit in your last answer, but I'd like to know how we can kind of strengthen the relationship between democratic socialists um, in office today and the movement on the ground, you know, just to ensure that that relationship continues to build. And, uh, you know, I think it's important. I think it's part and parcel of, of some of the success that we've been seeing, um, you know, in state legislatures and also in Congress. Yeah, um, I think that one one way is to make sure that we are not inadvertently sending this message when we when we're increasingly running Democratic Socialists for office that uh, we're not inadvertently sending the message that we um, that we believe that electoral politics is the only mechanism for transformative change, especially because that's really that really is of course alienating for people who share our ideology, but who are uh, reasonably disillusioned with electoral politics, right? So I think that one thing we need to to do is um, increase political education about what democratic, so- how, how democratic socialist um, elected officials are making a difference. And, and also, I think, always be emphasizing um, publicly, internally, within our, our organizations within the DSA, for example, always emphasizing that the significance of this is that these elections illustrate popular support for our policies and our vision, um, that there's real significance in, in uh, bringing material victories for the working class, that like the rent laws that we passed last year um, are, are keeping hundreds of thousands of people in their homes who might otherwise be displaced or pushed out or even made homeless that we're actually making meaningful change, even as we recognize um, that 
not that the electoral project is is only um, a part. It's only a component of the movement uh, for for democratic socialism and to build the world um, that that we know is actually possible. Um, and and so I think it's it's a combination of being in solidarity with other anti capitalists, recognizing that um, you know electoral politics is not the only mechanism for change, uh, but then also um, making sure that we as elected officials are held accountable constantly um, and are collaborating with the grassroots, um, making sure that people who are directly impacted by any given issue are actually drafting legislation and directly informing it are part of negotiations uh, that we're bringing them into the room because otherwise we can have the best policy platform. But if we are continuing business as usual by shutting people out of the halls of power, then we're really not any better than our predecessors who weren't democratic socialists. All right. Senator Julia Salazar, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Uh, Appreciate it. And, um, you know, I know you have a lot on your plate today, so good luck. And hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. All right, folks. Um, I guess I will do my commentary. We're still coming up with uh, the uh, what we're going to call them so we can sort of like spice it up, I guess. Um, but at any rate, in the United Kingdom, Rebecca Long Bailey was sacked, as they say, by Keir Starmer. He's, of course, the new leader of the Labour Party. He has been been so for several months. And Rebecca Long Bailey served as his education shadow minister in his shadow cabinet. We talked on one of the first episodes of this show with Aaron Bastani from Navarra Media about the relentless war, not only from the UK press, but inside the right-wing establishment forces of the Labour Party to destroy Jeremy Corbyn and an actual decent social democratic project for the UK. And of course, if Corbyn had been elected, there is no doubt that thousands of lives would have been saved um, from a very different response to the corona crisis, along with myriad other benefits of a Corbyn government that was particularly with the revelations that we had in 2017, in many respects, one could say robbed from getting because of the active and deliberate sabotage of the electoral and institutional leadership of the Labour Party. This was like a global scandal of really sort of undermining internally of a democratic process. Now, Keir Starmer ran on a platform, even though he obviously was identified with the establishment forces of the Labour Party, on sort of bridging the divide. He wasn't on the right. He sort of famously said that he would be praising and wanting to draw from the legacies of Jeremy Corbyn and Tony Blair. And Rebecca Long Bailey, who was, of course, closely affiliated with John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn, was his second closest competitor and he named her education shadow minister. It's a very important spot, but actually, as many commentators pointed out pretty early on, clearly not central to the Starmer agenda and what they were sort of front-loading in their press strategy. Um, And an interesting uh, that somebody who was his nearest competitor could maybe have gotten a more high-profile shadow ministry. 
Now, that being said, all of a sudden schools became a major issue in the last uh, couple of weeks, in the last months or so in the UK because of the government's mad and insane push to try to put, reopen schools as quickly as possible, even as the pandemic was still raging in the UK. And of course, it had been exacerbated by the shambolic and ridiculous response from the Boris Johnson Tory government. So Stammer, and again, as we always have to acknowledge in these things, he's actually polling very well. He's the most uh, popular opposition leader in quite some time. Um wasn't willing to take a really hard position one set way or another on the school's closing. Um, and I'll get to uh, the latest uh, firing of Rebecca Long Bailey, but this is really important uh, context. So let's actually go to link one, um, uh, Kale. This is um, Lucy Powell from May 17th. She is the uh, shadow business minister uh, in the Keir Starmer front bench. And here she is on Sky News saying that she wants her kids to be able to get back to school. Now, remember, this is at a time when the Tory government is trying to push this open. And the main opposition to reopening the UK schools are the United Kingdom's teachers unions who are looking out for their safety and their students' safety. Every week that goes by that, that children miss out on education you know, is, is a week causing real long-term damage to their future prospects, especially the most disadvantaged and vulnerable children sure. in our society. So, so do you feel confident enough to send your kids back on the first? Well, I, I think I personally would do, but clearly not everybody feels the same. And so we've got to make sure now that there is this consensus and confidence right across the system, not just for teachers, but for parents as well. And I think we've heard from the World or uh, Health Organization today that infection rates amongst children are lower uh, and that, that children are less likely to pass it on to, to other adults. But really, let's share that science. Let's get that message out there. Let's listen to the concerns that teachers and parents have about how social distancing is going to be adhered to in schools so that we can all move forward together rather than um, have these sorts of disagreements and lack of confidence. Now, now, some people, of course, that she was contradicting there included the shadow education minister, Rebecca Long Bailey, who, unlike other members of the shadow cabinet, was fighting to protect the health of school children and teachers. By the way, the reopening has been delayed anyways. Here's something she tweeted out. Uh, this is link number two uh, on May 15th, just two days before that interview with Lucy Powell. Uh, and of course, this was the right wing smear job that they were trying to make, which is that, you know, teachers, of course, don't care about the safety of themselves and their students. They're just lazy. They want a vacation in the middle of a disastrous pandemic. This is the Rebecca Long Bailey tweet. Please read this. This isn't a case of teachers being reluctant to go back to school right now because they're lazy. This is a case of teachers being reluctant to, to return right now because government guidelines have not been guaranteed, have not guaranteed the safety of staff and students. And of course, that was true. Now, Ultimately, the school opening was delayed and Keir Starmer claimed a political win. I'll quote really briefly from a great new piece by Ronan Burton Shaw in the in, in the end and uh, Tribune Mag. In the end, the teachers and their unions won out. A week after it began the phase reopening the schools, the government was forced to abandon its plans. 
Stammer's allies in the liberal media dutifully reported it as a victory for his leadership. However, as usual, his quote-unquote leadership involved swooping in after public opinion had changed in order to claim credit. Now, why does this all matter? Well, let's go back to the main instrument of propaganda and lies that helped destroy the Corbin project, which was this relentless propaganda that he and his team were filled with and allowing of anti-Semitism. And when the reports were actually uh, finally compiled after it had destroyed Corbin in 2019 and undermined him in 2017, there was like one reported instance of an actual anti-Semitic comment. And then, of course, the other major thing that we see here, which is a conflation of legitimate and necessary critiques of Israel for its occupation, its siege on Gaza, its endless human rights abuses and discriminatory policies, the criticism of a nation state with bigotry towards a people. And I have to just say here as a side note, one of the reasons that I think you really need to have a check and one of the reasons I have such a strong skepticism of pure identitarian politics actually goes back to growing up around uh, Jewish households that would justify any Israeli racism, any Israeli policy, any Israeli anti-democratic initiative, and then basically say that people who didn't have a Jewish identity couldn't comment on it because they didn't have the shared cultural memory of being victims of the Holocaust. And of course, Cultural memory and cultural position matter in a conversation, but they can never be the overall determining factor in moral judgments, let alone political controversies. So this weaponing of anti-Semitism was used not only to viciously lie about and smear Corbyn, but of course to redefine the notion of anti-Semitism itself, which is just to include any criticism of the nation state of Israel. Now, Fast forward, this is the quote, this is the tweet from a couple of days ago that got Rebecca Long Daily, uh, Bailey fired from the shadow cabinet. This is June 25th. Maxine Peake is an absolute diamond. Now, Maxine Peake is an actor in the United Kingdom, and the entirety of this interview in The Independent is actually her telling other people on the left to not give up on the Labour Party in spite of the undermining of Corbyn and some of the vicious revelations, which I'll get to in a second. In the middle of that interview, among many other things, she talked about the global nature of racism and police brutality, and she made the absolutely correct and very well-documented point that police forces in the United States regularly go to Israel to receive training from Israeli security forces, including in the occupied territories. Now, she said something that there isn't any... uh, proof of, and maybe she got a bit ahead of herself, and she said that they specifically learned the technique of kneeling um, on the neck, which was, of course, what Derek Chauvin did to murder George Floyd. Now, there is no proof specifically of that, but the overall context of what she's saying, again, is completely correct. You can read it in Amnesty International. There's absolutely zero controversy about it. Police forces regularly get trained in Israel, and I'd actually recommend um, there's there's some work uh, on by Israelis against home demolitions, which actually shows very specifically how 
the Israeli security forces repression of Palestinians has sort of been globally exported um, to not only war zones, but also uh, militarized policing as we see in the United States. So she got a fact wrong. She made a broader statement. And uh, Rebecca Long Bailey, without even specifically referencing that part of the article, was sacked. And by the way, Maxine Peake was accused of by the leadership of the Labor Party of anti-Semitism. She's actually been essentially slandered in this whole process as well. Now, Rebecca Long Bailey is out. And as Burton Shaw and others have pointed out, this clearly was the triggering factor and excuse because of her closeness with the labor unions. And the reporting is already that whoever takes her place will be someone who's willing to fight the teachers, which is, of course, an obsession with center-right members of the Labor Party. So this is, of course, complete bullshit. And it shows that you can never concede to bad faith arguments because this is never going to stop. And it also shows you that, yes, even conversations about distorting people's position, lying, um, a kind of constant deference to identitarian moral outrages has serious material consequences, as in this grotesque misuse of one of the most destructive forces in human history, anti-Semitism, to undermine the left of the Labour Party. And I just want to conclude, let's just go to clip uh, to, to link number three, to remind everybody of the reporting that actually came out several weeks ago. It's going to be a long night how members of Labor's senior management team campaigned to lose. This is a piece by Aaron Bastani. And it came out on April, uh, what is that, April 12th of 2020. And this piece went into great detail about, among other things, um, literally, that's a senior member of the Labor team saying, oh my God, like, we might win and we don't want that to happen in 2017. Um, lying to Jeremy Corbyn about how resources were being spent. Um, in fact, even including social media campaigns designed specifically to mislead the labor leadership about how resources were being spent. And of course, a variety of other, you know, really vile racist and sexist comments about members of the Corbyn Team. And again, this isn't just sort of like politics is politics and people go at each other and whatever. This is people who are literally paid by an institution and are responsible to constituents, including, of course, still a core of working class and poor people who had already been devastated and gutted by a vicious decade of Tory austerity, specifically trying to lose. Has there been a full accounting on that under Keir Starmer? No, not at all. But he has found an absolutely bullshit reason to fire Rebecca Long Bailey and actually in the process, basically slander an actress as well. So we need to be clear about these things. Don't believe the headlines. Fight back and be clear about who political enemies are. I mean, I, you know, I totally agree with you on this. Um, 
The similarities between the Democratic Party in the United States and the Labour Party in the UK are incredible. I mean, the parallels are incredible. Uh, similar tactics used by establishment Democrats uh, in the United States. Uh, I mean, we experienced it firsthand, honestly, with uh, Jenk running for Congress um, in California's 25th district. And the weaponizing of race, gender, was it was just all so disingenuous and it was all so disgusting, right? And it's not about actually caring about disenfranchised groups of people or doing something about anti-Semitism, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia. They don't care about any of that stuff. But what they will do is they'll use it uh, as, as a weapon against their political opponents. And it's just it's devastating to see not only that it's happening, but that there are well-intentioned people who fall victim to that narrative, right? They just kind of go along with it because of the overwhelming pressure, um, honestly, on social media. I think that when you are used to constant attacks and criticism, like doing what we do, for instance, you're used to it and you're willing to be a little more skeptical when there's a, a mounting pressure to do something that you think is fundamentally wrong. But for people on the left who are private citizens, but you know they're activists, they're involved, they want to change the country or wherever they live for the better. I think that when that pressure starts to mount, it's something that they're not necessarily used to. And that's when you see people fold. But I love the message that you've had. You've been very consistent. You cannot in any way cave to like disingenuous attacks toward people on the left who are trying to fight to make a difference. Absolutely. And I, I want to just say I real quick, Paul O'Connell, who's another guy that I really recommend people follow for all things UK politics. He's just and actually... Ireland, European Union, he's a really, really smart activist and attorney and Marxist analyst. And, you know, he said, like, one of the things that he did notice when this anti-Semitism propaganda campaign started that, you know, the the traditional kind of like labor oriented, um, you know, for the many, not the few anti-racist, anti uh, opposed to anti-Semitism and so forth, so forth. There was a huge that was just like, yeah, it's bullshit. And it, like on top of it, like, are you are you fucking kidding me? Like there's endless actual examples of, you know, this sort of sentiment from the Tory party as an example. It might be a problem in Britain, but and it is more of a problem in Britain, I think, than the United States, frankly. But like this is bullshit um, as a political project and as a smear. And we're not going to indulge it. And he definitely was like, but, you know, the college types and middle-class types who've been trained in like this metaphysics of wokeness had no ability to have any savviness about it. And they just mm -hmm. constantly Lucy in the football every time because they're in this like a historical moral hysteria that doesn't allow, you know, I mean, change and growth and evolution, of course, but, at, but not even like just the ability to actually see like, no, literally, this is just like a well-oiled, well-financed, powerful political project. And it has nothing to do with like your fifis and whatever. Like this is real shit and you need to wake the fuck up. And there is a big class composition in that difference. And, you know, ultimately, that's why the left needs a working class base among millions of other reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's time for salt. And, yes. uh 
You're going to take the reins on on the salt segment today because it's one of your favorite topics. And I, I'm obviously going to chime in, but I can't wait to hear uh, your commentary on it. So, so go forward. Look, I, I have actually really tried to not talk about Elizabeth Warren for months because have you? I honestly, <laughs> actually, relative to what I could do, I'm doing like ten percent. No, because honestly, I don't think. That the point about Elizabeth Warren was that she was this hugely destructive narcissistic force and like the most important primary in our lifetimes, arguably. Um, and so that was unhelpful and that's a problem and that deserves critique her, her campaign and her enablers for sure. But it really isn't about like, I, I actually have to like hold the same like, I don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to become like a constructive force in, in, in politics. Uh, and I think her reputation is sort of like crazily overblown, but like, look, if she, if she put in the work for the next, you know, three years, I'm not going to support her running for president or anything, but like, I will be the first to say like, that is an actual good piece of legislation that, you know, whatever. Okay. And, and I know her defenders are immediately going to be like, but you haven't, she said, blah, 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 blah. I'm not talking about things said or medium posts. I'm talking like points on the board. Anyways, that being said, Elizabeth Warren has been very interesting with endorsements. So she definitely joined Bernie in endorsing Jamal Bowman. She was on the right side of that race. And it's been fascinating, though, to see other endorsements. And I just have to say, her coming forward, and I think we have the tweet, endorsing John Hickenlooper is mind... Like, in the way that, like, I knew for, like, anybody who thought she'd ever endorse Bernie was just, I, I can't even understand how you could be that delusional. That was never going to happen. But I really thought there was definitely a chance, particularly as she's trying to, like, pitch this VP thing as kind of like, oh, you get the progressives with me, that she would take some give me's. Like, there's a decent candidate, Andrew Romanoff. He's pretty progressive, he's pretty environmentally oriented. Uh, cool. John Hickenlooper drank fracking water, was in the race as this like bizarre, like almost like anti-charisma candidate, basically just to like mumble in the microphone that people shouldn't get health care. Um, I mean, that's really what he's not like. Yep. I have a national platform to discourage health care and I'm really into fracking. And he has the charisma of like not even a dead goldfish, like discovering a dead goldfish. And (laughs) so for some reason, though, I mean, I don't know, maybe they hit it off on the campaign trail. Elizabeth Warren came out with, you know, here's the thing. John Hickenlooper is taking on the NRA, invest in wind, solar, and renewable energy to confront the climate crisis. Now, again, Andrew Romanoff is, is actually known for putting some very significant environmental pieces uh, of legislation on the table in uh, in Colorado and not for being a craven fracking advocate and massive right-wing corporatist like John Hickenlooper. And again, this actually substantively, this really shows again that Elizabeth Warren, at the very least, let's be diplomatic, is not ride or die for single-payer health care. Let, let's say that. I remember... Some people were very, all right, I will do some score settling. Some people were very triggered when you and I pointed out 
like what was in front of our faces that right. this person is not exactly committed to single pair. And it was so annoying because even strategically, if she just came out and said, I have like the best, most progressive and most generous non-single payer proposal available. Cool. We would disagree with it because it needs to be single payer, but okay, fair enough. But there was this whole like, you, how can you say that? Blah, blah, blah. Well, she's showing you again where her priorities are. Now, it wasn't just Elizabeth Warren. There's been another figure that I have to say, I think a lot of us just were insanely over accepting of and over supportive of. And now like she has become a bit of a joke because she's been so thirsty to be Biden's VP. This is Stacey Abrams. Now it's interesting because there's actually an interesting parallel here. And in some ways I have to say like Stacey Abrams is a much more dynamic presence to me than Elizabeth Warren because it's more current. Elizabeth Warren's like the greatest hits that people keep pointing to are from like almost a decade ago. Stacey Abrams, absolutely, um, when she was running for governor of Georgia. And again, not with like, actually, if you go into it, she didn't have like some great progressive record at all. And it's important to be really clear about that. That's absolutely not her politics. She's definitely corporate oriented, third way Southern Democrat. But there was absolutely, of course, as Anna talked about earlier, Republican voter disenfranchisement and racism. And there was a great chutzpah in her just saying, like, sure, like, I'm not the governor, but I don't fully accept these results, obviously, because there was voter disenfranchisement. Cool. Nice. Absolutely. And now, for the last couple of years, Stacey Abrams, like, this is another one where it's like endorsing corporate-oriented candidates, appearing with Mike Bloomberg, giving, giving a totally anemic response to Donald Trump's State of the Union And then like in the process, actually creating a very nice entertainment career for herself and writing career, which is great, more power to her, but really showing like this is not somebody with any sort of progressive commitments at all. And so there's just some interesting parallel tracks here in terms of like, you know, frankly, in this case, just like positive media formation that isn't earned and endorsing Hickenlooper. I mean... That Terrible. just couldn't be more stark. I mean, I, I guess the wor- I mean the the most flagrant would be endorsing Elliot Agle, or actually, or Amy McGrath, which I believe uh, Abrams might have tiptoed towards. But in the third in that sort of trifecta of bad calls would be John Hickenlooper over Romanoff, and there is uh, Warren and Abrams coming through. Cory Gardner uh, is more likely to be beat by. Romanoff. Right, uh, we need to fight like hell. And, and, the, and the primaries in Colorado are, are going to take place this week. So um, if you have time this weekend, please do some phone banking for Romanoff. He's a, a, an excellent candidate, fully on board with the Green New Deal. And as Michael mentioned, um, has uh, really put some serious climate change uh, legislation on the table in Colorado. Elizabeth Warren, I feel like at this point, isn't even pretending uh, to be this progressive warrior that she posed as uh, during the primaries. You know, when she endorsed uh, Hickenlooper over Romanoff, I shared that information with people who are still pretty supportive of Warren, sympathetic to her positions, and don't buy the argument that, Michael, you've been making from the beginning about how she's not genuine about uh, these uh, 
proposals. And I think people are now starting to realize, oh, okay, there, there is this ambition over anything else characteristic that Elizabeth Warren has. You know, at first I was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt and, and believe that she's genuine in wanting to accomplish uh, progressivism in this country, but her theory of change is off. Uh, she thinks that she has to work with the establishment in order to get it done. Now I'm realizing that, no, that's, that's really not even her theory of change. I mean, what she's hyper-focused on is her theory of gaining more power and furthering her political career. Endorsing Hickenlooper over Romanoff is one of the worst things that she's done. And if she was genuine in wanting to uh, push forward with real uh, universal health care, she knows that having, Rome, um, having Hickenlooper as opposed to Romanoff in Congress is going to make that unbelievably harder. So why would you endorse someone who's like the darling of the private healthcare the industry? Thing. Just Here's makes no thing. sense. So, yeah, I mean, totally. And I think like she's actually an interesting example, though, of like we, we have this like cancel or stand culture, which is just terrible. Mm-hmm. And we've been focusing because, you know, the the gears of like cruelty and viciousness have been like in full gear. And so like. The, the witch hunts on people and everything that have been going on for years and rejecting that. But like there is actually a flip that shows up, which is of like this person can just do no wrong um, and not take them in their totality. So, I, you know, and, and even me, like I think like, look, there are other people who were way more critical of her out of the gate than I was. I just was trying to like and they were right. And I was just trying to like follow just like what I saw in front of me. And of course, like the big stumbling block was just always like, why is she running? Like mm-hmm. Bernie's the candidate for this stuff. Right. Like, but at any rate, I think like that's, that's sort of like the balance. And so I don't want to like actually get into the other, like, again, like it's not like screw Elizabeth Warren forever or whatever, but it's just like, can you just be like slightly real about her? And, right, you know, I, right. and I don't and I just don't understand, you know, she took at this time, I mean, her big post, like, and again, she just didn't run like she was a fifth place finisher. Her base was the media and she goes out and the first thing she does is again smear Bernie Sanders and his supporters like on Rachel Maddow. Nothing to do with policy, nothing to do with commitments, just pure aggrieved narcissism. And like, I, you know. So I don't know if if at this point Hickenlooper shouldn't do the trick. It should just be that like you know what she's really trying to do is being nice to John and because she knows that he's going to win because she's so smart. And then when he does win, then that that then it then it becomes single payer. Then Hickenlooper that's a, that was always the war thing. Just like then John Hickenlooper will be elected. Then his son will read Grouchy. And then his son will convince him to change a policy portfolio just in time for 2025 when I have been put in charge of a new office for COVID recovery. And then the plans start to kick in. That's what Bernie people don't understand. So that's what I also love, too. It's just like, oh, yeah, you fucking idiots, like just going out and having policies and fighting for it and trying to rally popular support. Fuck all that. The way you really do it is you have this Rube Goldberg contraption. Just like nonsense that nobody understands. 
except for nerds in the media. And then somehow like the pinball ricochets off and Elizabeth, Elizabeth are like, everybody gets citizenship in Singapore. And then. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if this is even okay to mention, but like your Elizabeth Warren impression reminds me of a character on Family Guy. Do you watch Family Guy at all? I don't. Oh. You have to there's show that a, to me. There's a neighbor <laughs> for the family in Family Guy. And uh, yeah, he has uh, the exact same tone in his voice. So every time you like do her impersonation, I think of him. And it's just like an extra layer of like funny and creepy at the this. same time. It's awesome. <laughs> I have to see that. I have to see this. Yeah. Um, do we have any questions, Kale? Uh, so I'm looking for them. If people want to submit super chat questions, yeah, we can take one or two live chat. chats. Um, let's see. Uh, someone had asked a question earlier. I don't know to what extent you two feel like you can answer this, but I'll just throw it at you. Um, Kimberly had asked, any news on two in jail for burning car dash in NYC? So I guess maybe the more kind of generous or generative version of that question is just uh, kind of thoughts on how the protests have been evolving um, here in New York, uh, uh, where Michael and I are. There's uh, an Occupy City Hall uh, protest occurring at the moment. Um, there's still protests across the country, although the certainly not what it was several weeks ago. So I guess maybe um, if you guys have any new thoughts uh, on kind of how the protests have been developing over the last few weeks. And if, again, if you know anything about a really specific question. What uh, was the question again? I didn't catch that. News on two in jail for burning car dash in NYC. Oh, okay. So this is actually really quick. This is actually a really important story. And I interviewed Murtaza Hussein about this on the Majority Report on Thursday. And unfortunately, I forget the name of the two lawyers, which is bad. We should all remember their names. So basically, these these two attorneys um, who are young, uh, like they're, you know, they're both in their early 30s. They were at the protest. They got caught on camera and it's it's totally clear. I mean, this is just whatever you think of it. This is just absolutely symbolic. They're not trying to hurt anybody. They went by a police car that had already been like destroyed. There was no people nearby and they threw a mono, uh, some type of homemade Molotov cocktail in it and it scorched the dashboard a bit. Again, this is like, I don't know. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I remember like this is an extremely stupid example. I remember like being in high school, like we were like, there was some big party in the woods and there was a car that was already pretty beat up. And some guy started like, you know, stomping on the roof of the car and, you know, it was dumb, but the car was, it was his car and it was already effed up. So like, this is more analogous to that right now. They basically, first of all, they could go to jail for 45 years. The Trump administration is trying to make like a serious example of them in a way that clearly is designed to terrify anybody from protesting. And the other thing is, is that the media went and immediately embraced this like really mocking narrative. And by the way, like, look, if these guys like got caught and, you know, it was like, oh, you know, you're going to do five hours of community service or whatever. Like, I might have a little bit of a chuckle too. like, sure. But the truth of the matter is, is that 
they were completely dehumanized, not just in the New York tabloids, which is wrong, but you'd expect, but the New York Times and CNN, you know, basically just saying like, what's wrong with them? Like they're, you know, they're, they're lawyers. They, they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just trying to make them look like idiot, vicarious thrill seekers. And like, the truth of the matter is, is that these are both like the young man, uh, his family's from Jamaica. He grew up in East New York. He worked his way, uh, I think through NYU and law school has a really good job. And, you know, one of the things that people have pointed out is that part of the reason people were more aggressive at protests is a lot of people feel they have less to lose. Well, these two people, she was also a public interest lawyer in the Bronx and his fam- her family had immigrated from Pakistan. Like they had a lot to lose. They had real, you know, they, they had good jobs and they were out, um, obviously in the main, completely correct, like, you know, out protesting for this very righteous cause. There was also an interview with her, that the full context was her kind of basically making the point that property damage is treated as more serious than harming people like the murder of George Floyd. The New York Daily News cut it to make it look like she was threatening violence towards cops, which was not what she was doing. Um, So this is like a really, really dangerous case. And they are right. The last I heard of it, I mean, they weren't even getting bail. Um, so I would say people should read Murtaza's piece in the intercept and we should, um, really stay on top of that case. Cause it's really awful and, and they definitely need our support. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, justice department and New York, like prosecutorial attempt to, to stop people from going to protest period. I have no doubt. And it was also this like cheap media narrative where instead of like looking at the stakes and the consequences and filling out the picture, it was just like, Oh, oh, oh look at these idiots. Well, you know, they can go to there, there. And even if they don't go for 45 years, like the design it's to suppress protests and to get them to plead, you know, like five years doesn't feel like so much if it's not 45 years, it's a lot and it's enormously damaging <laughs> and it's all completely unjust. So we should support them strongly. I think, Real quick, you know, the protests are ongoing. That's cool. I think one of the things that, you know, people should think about is definitely like, what is the next phase and not getting addicted to particular types of tactics? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. And, you know, I'm starting to see a shift from, you know, the actual effective activism uh, that takes place on the streets to the Twitter war cancel culture component of it, which isn't as important or even it's not nearly as important. Um, I think that the most important thing is to shift the focus squarely on protecting people from brutal force and also ensuring that we solve the inherent problems that we have in this country that lead to uh, crimes of desperation, really. Um, so the inequality, uh, the economic system, all of this stuff is intertwined and we honestly can't get distracted by some of the nonsense that we're seeing on Twitter right now. Oh God, it's, it's totally antithetical and it's please, I mean, it's, yeah, this, this is exactly how, you know, serious things get diverted to stupid and gross and disgusting counterproductive things. Any others, Cal? Yeah, someone, uh, nstarks007 had asked about, um, well, they asked about someone's specific post-mortem on, uh, on the Bernie campaign. So uh, I guess the question, I'm kind of tweaking it a little bit, but just um, if you have any favorites or thoughts on uh, some of the Bernie post-mortems, um, I'll 
let viewers know that we did a we did our own with Matt Carp a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know I think Matt's one of our smartest and most brilliant analysts we have on the left right now. So I'll give him a shout out. But um, if you guys wanted to just kind of talk about any of that, I know uh, Michael, you talked with Dustin a couple of weeks ago about his. Um, but yeah, if you wanted to weigh in on on the Bernie postmortems, who got it right? Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in. I just think that at this point, Bernie in a lot of ways has won in that what we're seeing in these congressional races is huge. Um, but it's not just about congressional races. It's about people who are taking to the streets and demanding change, demanding justice. Um, and I think that's a huge part of what Bernie wanted to empower and embolden. So, um, you know, I think that Michael does a really good job in, in keeping us grounded and making sure that we're realists about where we're winning, where we're losing, what we need to improve on. So I don't want to pretend that, you know, oh, the left is so powerful and strong in this country. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to do. But Bernie was clear from the beginning that it wasn't just about him. It wasn't just about the presidential election. It's about getting people who have been disillusioned and discouraged by our, by our democratic process um, active, politically active, get them um, out there on the streets, get them to vote. And I think that we're seeing that right now in real time, which is which is a positive change. Um, but, you know, if you want critique on how uh, Bernie Sanders and, and his campaign was conducted, I mean, I wish that there was more emphasis on uh, the David Sirotas of the world and uh, his strategy and his tactics and coming at opponents from a place of absolute strength and aggressiveness as opposed to, you know, and look, Bernie is a friendly person. I mean, he gets criticized as a grouchy person, but in reality, like he's super kind hearted and is uncomfortable attacking people politically. So that's just who he is. And you can't necessarily change that. Uh, but I do think that it would have been more effective uh, to go the David Sirota route and um, punch opponents where it hurts. Um, yeah, I agree with all of that. And I'd only add, read Dustin Guastella's piece and Jacobin and watch the interview that we did. I, I, I don't think there's, I mean, I also, of course, I think Carp is brilliant, but I, I think Guastella down to the critiques that we spelled out of the campaign. I mean, I think he really got it. It looks like the two attorneys are Collinford Mattis and Aruj Rahman. Um, so let's let's definitely stay out, uh, on top of that one. Do we have one or two more, Kale, before we wrap up? Yeah, let's do one more. There's a, there's a good question. It's kind of, um, you know, something that has been on the left for, I mean, really since the resurgence of Sanders, kind of an ongoing question. Uh, Michael asks, what's your take on social democracy versus democratic socialism? Would one or the other play better in elections? So I think it's starting with the terminological question of what's, how do we distinguish those two? Uh, and then is one more viable given the particular political economy of, that we live in today? I mean, obviously, functionally, social democracy is more viable um, in terms of the economy we live in today and, and in terms of like mostly a message for most people. I mean, I, I'm somebody who really is not like, yeah, I, I, I consider my, I think I'm, I'm definitely a socialist and how I define that. 
I think there's a huge amount of importance in people being adults and resisting propaganda when it comes to like reading Marx and understanding that political tradition and the core strategic insights of it. There's another part of the world we're in where I just don't care about labels. I really don't. I, I, I think there was, some, there's something necessary. It's a, it's a, it's a duality because like things, you know, obviously Jacobin's been huge in this, like there needs to be work to detoxify those words and get people to actually grapple with the, the frameworks. But the terminology, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just don't care. And I, and I think like, it's very, I think that's another thing that people get really lost in. And I will say that like, to me, when we get too lost in the obsession about like the specifics of how we define this or that, that's actually, again, like that's the terrain of like woke Twitterati. Like that's just all like Mm -hmm. ephemeral, like, you know, I'm this, I'm like, I have this politics. I have that politics. This thing is bad. This thing is good. Like the point is just to, in my view is just like get into some like actual power analysis of how the world works advocate for labor, advocate for mass public good provisions. And honestly, probably like the reach of my politics is might be more akin in some ways to democratic socialism. I don't really see a reason why major heights of capital in this society or any shouldn't be organized in a much more democratic fashion. But I don't. Bernie called himself a socialist. It was usually important. We had an opportunity to work and defend that word. Uh, if he could have gotten 3% more of the vote without using that word, I'd trade that in a second. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I guess um, my less sophisticated way of answering the question to people who identify as part of the left, whether you're a social Democrat or democratic socialist, is just don't be a dick and understand that we need a broader coalition to win. Uh, when it comes to the issues that really matter, affordable housing, single payer health care, ensuring that people have what should be uh, basic human rights. Uh, and we're not going to get there if we get caught up in these like ridiculous internal debates about what the appropriate label is and whether we want to reject one f- uh, faction of a group uh, over the other. It's just it, I, I think it's dumb and it's not productive. Totally. And I, and I, the last thing, I mean, Matt Crispin and I talked about this, too. Like it also starts to play. Again, like one of the funniest things you could see in the primary was somebody being like, you know, I support Elizabeth Warren. Like, okay, so in in like the actual world of reality that we're living in, you support like the not like, let's say the center left versus like social democratic choice or the technocratic choice versus like there's a real difference. There's going to pack tons of people, foreign and domestic, and you're picking the non-left version of that. That's fine, whatever, but that is what it is. But instead of saying that, it would always be like, well, I support Elizabeth Warren because of, you know, whatever bullshit, blah, blah, blah. But like, I, I mean, you know, don't forget, like I'm a futurist, post-anti-capitalist, Ho Chi Minh, Maoist, communist. Like, like it was like, okay, so I get that you have like a highly developed fantasy life, but in here, you're not. And so it actually can even be even more like one that's, alienating to over 90% of people. They don't know what the fuck you're talking about, frankly, nor should they. And it's also, 
you know, it's an interesting wedge for actually like, well, because I have like, you know, like I'm a space age utopian Stalinist. So like the way that translates is like, I'm just an asshole online. Like it always actually dovetails with like not actually attempting to do any type of like, like work. And I'm not saying that people can, people can do that stuff and still do great work. But I think the function of that specific way of, you know, going into those weeds, because I mean, you know, look, like we're not even in a place where we're like the truth, like we're having an election between like right wing populist corporatist garbage and white nationalism against like, you know, woke neoliberal corporatist bullshit. Like that's the choice. That's where we're at. So, you know, I'd love, maybe we'll get to a point where democratic socialism versus social democracy is on the table, but that's not where we are at all. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess that does it for today's show. Uh, should we wrap or yeah, we should wrap. question? I think that's great. All right, let's do it. We'll, we'll be back next week. Everybody stay safe, stay strong. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Kale. Thanks guys. Thank you.